This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with best-selling author Harlan Coben. He shares his insights on creating realistic characters, adapting a story for the screen, and his advice to aspiring writers. But first, what's ahead? After repeatedly vowing to ban fracking during the presidential primaries, Joe Biden and running mate Kamala Harris now claim they meant no such thing. This abrupt switch is no surprise. Pennsylvania is a crucial swing state and fracking is a big business there. But don't take their reassurances seriously. If elected, they will cripple fracking through regulations and harassing lawsuits, just as Biden and Barack Obama bankrupted the coal mining industry when they were in power. Cheap and abundant natural gas and oil is why our energy costs are lower than most developed countries. If Democrats follow through on their promises, expect to pay 50% or more for your gasoline and electricity. Moreover, the environment will be hurt. Natural gas is a clean fuel. The oil drilled here is relatively clean. If production is cut because of regulation, we will be importing so-called dirty oil from Venezuela, Canada, and the Mideast. The Democrats' war on natural gas and oil will start by prohibiting drilling on federal lands. The EPA and other federal agencies will attack facilities on private property with massive waves of rules and regulations that will delay exploration and production and thereby sharply raise costs and prices. Washington will impose arbitrary fines for alleged infractions, believing that real and lasting damage will be done to the fossil fuel industry before our sluggish courts get around to ruling on their legality. Another avenue of attack will be regulatory assaults on pipelines, preventing constructions of new ones and shutting down existing ones, or at least curtailing their use. This too will raise prices. Expect the IRS and other agencies to harass individual oil and natural gas executives. The Biden-Obama regime did just that against officials of coal and natural gas companies. Remember, natural gas is the critical fuel for generating electricity. This clean fuel is the chief reason why carbon dioxide emissions have fallen so much in the past decade in the U.S. By assaulting oil and natural gas production, prices for heating oil, gasoline, and electricity will skyrocket. Alternative energy sources like wind and solar can't replace these government-created shortfalls anytime soon. Even when they come online, they are unreliable and costly. Germany went all out for non-fossil fuels. The result? Electricity is two to three times more costly there than here. California went big time for alternatives, which is why electricity rates there are the highest in the country and why the state is plagued by blackouts. Do we really want that for the whole nation? And now, my interview with Harlan Coben. My special guest today is Harlan Coben, fellow New Jerseyite, outstanding novelist of our era, perhaps of any era. He's written, what, 32 books, including three books for uh, adolescents, which, no surprise, have also appealed to adults. 
75 million copies sold around the world. I think you sell more, almost now more outside the U.S. than in the U.S., an amazing feat. 44 different languages, awards, including the Triple Crown for Mystery Writers. Someday they're going to have to have the Harlan Award. <laughs> also, Harlan's been involved in uh, screenplays, films, TV series, including two that you must see, at least I saw and couldn't leave. So do it when you have time to spare, The Stranger and Safe. There have been three productions of his work in France, which he was involved in, three in Britain, also Germany, Spain, Poland. I think uh, the ones in France have uh, won equivalent of the Academy Awards there and also elsewhere. Harlan's also a member of the New England Basketball Hall of Fame and also the New Jersey Hall of Fame, which, as Harlan pointed out, only New Jersey would do this. You see it in Terminal B at the Newark Airport. <laughs> and, and so his, his, his wife is a pediatrician, Anne, and she's uh, the dean of admissions at Columbia Medical School. Uh, their oldest daughter, Charlotte, wrote episode five of The Stranger. And one of my daughters said that was the best episode in the series. Harlan, don't get worried. That's just saying, just saying. <laughs> but his books are, you might call them grippers. Uh, I read his first one that gripped me. The first book I read of Harlan wasn't his first book, but it was called Tell No One. And I made the mistake, this was about 18, 20 years ago, of reading it on a red-eye flight from uh, Los Angeles to New York. I thought I'd just read a few pages of this thing. One of my daughters, I think it was Sabina, said, Yo, you must read Harlan Coben. So I thought I'd read a few pages, get a few hours of sleep, and then uh, go to work. Well, I arrive in Newark, and I'm still reading the bloody thing. Just could not put it down. So, uh, Harlan, you say you write uh, the contemporary novel about ordinary people seemingly a placid pond, and then uh, there's a stone or a pebble or something and ripple, and away we go. Describe how you describe yourself, and then how you get your inspiration after 32 books. People always ask, does it dry up? Well, yes, but then you figure out how to get the reservoir filled again. How do you describe your novels, and uh, how do you uh, keep going, so to speak? Yeah, <laughs> I always have trouble describing my own novels, but yes, they always take place in contemporary times. Whatever's going on is usually reflected. Though, to be honest, I just finished a book called Win, and I was debating if I was going to set it in the COVID world or not. I'd already started it before COVID, so I actually moved it to 2019, so I wouldn't have to kind of deal with that issue yet. I still don't know exactly how that's going to play into a book, because let's face it, we don't know what, what it's going to be like next month, nonetheless, you know, six months from now. Right. Um, I try to write page turner. Uh, some people call mystery or thriller. I call it the novel of immersion. I want uh, my book to be the book you take on vacation, but you can't leave your hotel room because you have to know what happens to Wynn and Myron or, or, or Alex, whoever's in the lead character in the book, and becomes a part of your life. You, you know, you go to bed, you're going to read 10 pages, as you were just saying, on the plane, and then snooze off. But you end up staying up to four in the morning and cursing me out in the morning. That's the kind of book that I want to write. Or that the book. wife cursing me out for what are you doing up at the kitchen table at four? <laughs> <in the morning? laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm looking for. I'm look. I'm looking to ruin some of your sleep. <laughs> you do it very successfully, uh, but you make the point on these uh, characters that you think a good writer, good novelist, must have some empathy with these people, not just disdain them or. Uh, be nihilistic about it. Even in The Stranger, the villain, you get more than one dimension. Describe that, how you have to uh, 
get inside their skins in a way that the reader can relate to? Well, I think I think in general, reading gives you empathy. And so people who read books, you gather empathy. As a writer, not necessarily in a positive way, not necessarily in a, in a, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. I have to be able to experience what that person is experiencing and make them relatable. No one sees themselves as the villain, very few. So what are they thinking? How are they feeling? I also, I actually work harder on making sure the villains are three-dimensional or as hard as the heroes. And at the end of most of the books, I hope, you kind of ask yourself, is the villain really all that bad? Can I see myself doing the same thing as the villain? To use, I know you're a baseball fan. You and I have gone to a Yankee game together even. Um, it's sort of like I, I pictured the difference between good and evil as the foul line at a baseball game, fair and foul. And, you know, after you you walk across that strong line and after you go across that, it becomes very fuzzy and hard to see where fair is foul and foul is fair. And I want to play as close to that line as I possibly can. So that is very murky. Who is the good guy and who is the bad guy? It's very, very few of your characters are outright villain villains like those two torturers in one of your books. Uh, but, <laughs> but most of them uh, do. It's sort of the road to perdition. You uh, make a step and then suddenly you uh, find yourself getting into something you never could have imagined. You Thanks. do it every time. In terms of uh, creation, whether it's uh, an inventor, an innovator, as Thomas Edison, another Jersey boy, put it, it's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. So in terms of becoming a writer, it's not something uh, necessarily you're born with. You would like to point out you weren't doing it in the womb. Walk us through how you uh, sort of walked into becoming a writer. It wasn't your life plan from the time you were conceived. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> but it, it, I, I'll, I'll take a little twist on, on Thomas Edison's I think there's three things that make a writer, um, two of which are obvious, and you mentioned, and the third is not quite as obvious, but maybe it's probably the most important. So the first is inspiration. You have to be inspired to write. Well, obvious, let's just do that and move on. The second is the perspiration part of writing, and that is you have to actually write. This is what a lot of people don't get. Writing is only one thing is writing, and that is writing. Producing words on paper or a screen is only thing that counts as writing. So for those out there, Outlining is not writing. Creating characters is not writing. Going to the coffee shop and talking about books with your friends is not writing. Only writing is writing. Only actually, don't give yourself an easy way out. Research is definitely not writing. None of that counts as writing. So we have inspiration, we have perspiration. But the third and most important to me is desperation. And that is, I'm not really fit to do anything else. Like have a real job. I'm disorganized. I'm forgetful. I'm a little lazy-minded in other things. I get distracted easily. So this is all I can do. And that desperation, that need to have something to do and be able to do this is what drives me back and making sure that I'm constantly at work and making the best story that I can. If I'm really accomplished in something else, it's a bad thing in a, in a way. Um, I heard a story about two famous musicians talking. And one was starting as he made a lot of money buying two or three houses. And then he started to get into like, really like antique carpets. He was going every weekend and doing antique carpets. And his friend realized he's not going to make the great music anymore because he has other interests. It's a negative to have other interests. I have basically my family and my writing. I took up golf, which was dumb, but really those are the, the two things. And so um, by being a little bit obsessive 
you have to be a little bit obsessive, I think, to write as many books as I have and to keep going. It has to be the only thing you're good at. And uh, it's not always clear. You uh, went to Amherst. Uh, you had a job with the family travel agency for a while. Yep. Perhaps you uh, learned a little fiction there. Uh, you were a tour guide in Spain, and you once described how at the end of the day, these people would want to say, what was that little cathedral five miles off the road, four hours we passed by at uh, 60 miles an hour? What, what was that cathedral? You got to come up with a name. Right, just make it up. <laughs> no, just make it up. I usually, I usually called it um, San Maria del Almuerzo, which means St. Mary of Lunch. But uh, it sounds good. <laughs> right. So you make the point that uh, writing is a job. And don't wait for the muse. Walk yeah. us through that. It's like a plumber. You got to fix the pipes. You got to sit down and write. Even if nothing's coming out, you got to make yourself do it. It's true. In a, in, a, in a Philip Roth novel, there was a line. He was actually quoting somebody else, but uh, Philip Roth had a, had a line in a novel where he said that um, amateurs wait for the muse to arrive. The rest of us just get to work. And that's just great. Um, it may be an art, it may be something highfalutin, but the actual process is not pretty or or easy and it, it takes a lot of work the inner comparison i think novels a little bit like a sausage you might like the final taste you probably don't want to know how it was made uh, and you mentioned the plumber and, and that's exactly it i can't wake up one day and say oh you know today i'm too important to to do pipes a plumber can't say that and i have to treat it like the like a job so every writer that's produced any any amount of work and almost every great artist that I know, be they a painter, sculptor, musician, whatever it is, um, will tell you that, that, that you really have to treat it like a job. You can't sit there. That's what amateurs do. They kind of sit there and they think something divine is going to happen to them. And that's just not how it works. And uh, in terms of uh, how you do it, you once said, if you ask 10 writers how they do it, you'll get 11 different answers. Uh, but in your case, you have a beginning and an end, but nothing in between. Yeah, when I write the novel, I know the beginning when I start, obviously, at the beginning, and I know the end. Um, so I think of the idea, I think of that last twist, and then I begin the journey. I compare it to traveling from our home state of New Jersey across the country to California. I may go Route 80, which is direct route. Chances are I'll go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo. <laughs> but I pretty much always end up in California, and I, and I see it there from the beginning, and that kind of helps me helps me get there. But the route I'll take, I don't know. There's a great quote. There's several great quotes on writing, of course, but one of my favorites from E.L. Doctorow, who says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. It's kind of what I do, except I know where that journey is going to end. Well, this gets to uh, the proverbial writer's block, uh, which you say, so what else is new? Right. Or you paint yourself in a corner. You just have to describe how you just have to bull your way through it. Yeah. You know, if you look, you write your way in a corner, you got to figure out how you're going to back out. It's like, you know, you, you parked in too tight of a space and you're trying to get out and you have to go inch by inch maybe and keep turning and twisting. But the problem is what some people start to do is they just kind of give up. Everybody has those moments of what we call writer's block, writing ourselves into some place that we just don't know our way out of. The question is, how do you handle it? Part of it also is something, there's something that's zen about it. I've learned that that's part of the process. So there's no reason to extra beat myself up over it. You know, I'll get out of it as long as I stick with it. If I say, oh, you know, I just, 
I just won't do anything. It'll come to me. Not really a good idea. Take a walk, uh, take a bike ride, do something athletic. But even when I'm doing something else, there's always a voice in my head that says I should be writing. There's always a voice trying to, to figure out what that, you know, untie that knot that I left behind. So the key is accept that writer block is part of the process and understand that may, it's telling you something. And often your best moments will come when you get through that writer's block. If it's going a little too smoothly, you know, maybe there's a problem there. So oftentimes I throw in my own writer's block where I have a scene sort of planned out how it's going to go a certain chapter. And then a character acts. Um, I, I was trying to get the character to act in a way that wasn't into the character. So it changes things around. I'll give a quick example. So if you're writing a scene, I've written, I wrote this scene once in an old Myron Bolotar book where Myron was going into one of those no-till motels, you know, with the sign on the outside saying, now featuring towels, that kind of motel. <laughs> and he was going to bribe the guy behind the desk to give him some information. That was my plan. But when Myron walked in there and I'm writing it, all of a sudden, this guy behind the desk of the sleazy motel actually has it beautifully set up and he's wearing tails and he takes his job really seriously and he won't accept the bribe. So how does Myron get out of that? How does he figure it out now? He can't just give the guy the easy answer, the $50, and move on. And that created all kinds of comic possibilities and may and forced Myron to be clever and more original. And the scene ends up not being the same scene you've seen 800 times before. And uh, in terms of uh, the writing process, it's good uh, for people to hear that many times what you think you've done sucks. I mean, you think this is crap. It happens all the time. Walk us through that so uh, we don't get discouraged in the job if we think, oh, boy, this is not working out so well. Yeah, pretty much every day. I actually think the, the probably the biggest difference between someone who's actually writing and someone who wants to write who doesn't, there's a million differences, but the biggest difference is the ability to turn off that voice in your head or at least ignore it. We all have it. I know Stephen King still has it where you're writing and you read something and you go, wow, you know, imposter syndrome, this really stinks, I'm no good. The writer who tells you that they don't feel that way is usually a terrible writer. Only bad writers think they're good. Uh, only if you're talking to a writer, go, oh, you know, this is a real masterpiece and I had no trip. No, trust me, that book stinks. The rest of us have to kind of go through this, you sort of live with this natural insecurity. The key is to understand as part of the process. So all the things that slow you down. And I still go through on my 33rd or 34th book, whatever I'm on now. Um, I just know, I recognize that it's not going to, it's not really the end of the world. My wife, I, I'll often whine to my wife. I was, you know, oh, this book's not working at all. And she just rolls her eyes because she said, you said that every book, you know. Um, and that's just part of the process. The key is to turn off that voice that paralyzes you. And we all have it. To turn that off or to fight through it and get through it. Um, Pardon my language on this. Uh, the great um, Anne Lamott has a book called Bird by Bird, which I highly recommend. It's the greatest writing guide in the world. And she has something called the shitty first draft. It's a chapter, which basically gives you permission, which I, I do tell everybody, just, just throw it down. Just throw, just throw it up, if you will. Don't worry if it stinks. Don't worry if you have the wrong word. Don't worry if it's dialogue. Instead, just throw it all up and then fix it. The comparison I often do is, is diamond mining, which is not something I know much about. But if you know anything about diamond mining, they, they take this big, ugly rock out of the ground. And you look at that rock, and it's big and ugly and nothing there. But that's where the value is. That's what's worth a fortune. Then later on, they will 
polish it down and chop it up and do all the things they do to make it something beautiful that you want to wear. That's what your rewrites are supposed to do. The key is to get that ugly stone out of the ground first. So in, in you yourself, you take nine months to do a book. The amazing thing is eight months, you're halfway through, and then comes the stage where you uh, become almost manic, I guess, turning out a zillion words a day. Describe that and uh, the banana syndrome. <laughs> Again, 10 writers, ask 10 writers, you get 11 different answers. But most part, if I'm writing a 500-page book, I'm around the page 250 at the eight-month mark and write 250 in a month. Usually, in the case of the last book, The Boy from the Woods, which is and win, which are typical, probably less 40 pages in one day, um, less 100 pages even in a week. Part, part of it is that I've seen it. It's just the natural way it goes. I've been living with that ending in those moments for a long time. So once I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, nothing stops me. I will be writing 24 hours in a row, 48 hours in a row with very little sleep. My kids kind of walk past the room and say, toss daddy banana and run, you know. <laughs> and I grow a playoff beard like a hockey player. And I'm a complete mess. And the house is a mess. Uh, everything just kind of goes off the rails for those couple of weeks or however long it takes me um, to finish it. And that's been my process for a while. And I kind of enjoy it. I really love that moment when I'm, I'm in the thick of it. And I just, there's nothing else I want to do. Part of it also is, man, do I want to finish? I've been living with this thing for nine months. And there's no, as much as whatever, there's no better feeling than, than finishing a book. Now, quickly describe a couple of ways you've uh, found inspiration. You just don't sit there and wait for the muse to come. You're in a certain right. situation, something uh, pops in your head. I know you've described it before, but since uh, the character of uh, the boy from the woods, we may be seeing him again. He's an adult now. Yeah. How that came to you, wild, he's called. Yeah. And uh, also uh, some some of your other inspirations. Well, we live in the, in the state of New Jersey, which people have a vision in their head that's probably not accurate, but we actually have the Appalachian Mountains here not too far from my house, the Rampo Mountains are a part of the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, one day with the family, I was going hiking. And to be honest, I really don't like hiking. I don't kind of, I, I don't get it. After a while, it's a tree. I got it. I saw another tree right back there. And now I'm seeing another tree and another tree. And I'd rather walk through the city streets where I can window shop or browse through a bookstore or things like that. So my mind starts to wander. And as I'm hiking there, I see a, a boy around six years old kind of by himself. I started thinking, what if, what if this boy came out of the woods right now and said, he's always been there. You know, he remembers no other life before that. He let, he fed off the land. He broke into cabins to feed himself. He doesn't remember any parents. He doesn't remember any life before that. Wow, that'd be an interesting character. And what if he grew 30 years later, he, we have him, he's older and, and how would he be now? And imagine now another kid goes missing in the woods and it's his job to find him. So that was the what if that started the book, The Boy from the Woods. I'll give one more quick one when I did the book Promise Me, because it's a short one. I overheard a few teenagers talking about drinking and driving. And, and I said to them, promise me, title of the book, promise me you won't do that. Uh, here's my phone number. I don't care if it's three in the morning. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're on. I'll come and pick you up. I won't tell your parents. Just promise me you won't get in a car with someone who's been drinking and driving. And again, many of you have maybe done something similar. Um, and in real life, nothing else happened. That's the end of the story. They never called me. But what if? What if it was three in the morning and a teenage girl called my hero and he went to New York and he picked her up and he dropped her at what he thinks is a friend's house? And the next day she's gone and no one at the house even knows who she is. That was the opening 
have promised me. So there's two quick examples of, of how I use the what if method, if you will, of trying to find finding inspiration. It's it's working. I do for every hundred what ifs, I maybe get a, a book out of it or you know, there's a million that I write down that I never use. It's actually a very good thing, not just for, for fiction writing, but in terms of anything you're doing in your life, you know, if you're looking at your business, uh, your politics, whatever, try to turn the other way around. See, what, what if this happened instead of that? What if my leader acted this way instead of that? What if the guy who runs this company tries this instead of that? In fiction writing, it's, ob- it's more obvious, but I actually try to do it in everything and everything else that I, that I do with my life. And uh, one of the most haunting scenes was, I think, uh, a book called Caught. Uh, mm-hmm. The hero trying to do good goes to a house and it's a setup for a TV show highlighting pedophiles. Whoa, how do you dig yourself <laughs> out of that one? <laughs> Great. Well, remember those shows to catch a predator, those kind of shows uh, that were right. on. I was watching one of them and I'm like, again, what if, what if I'm watching this show and all of a sudden I see a friend of mine on? And then what? What if he was being set up or maybe we don't know if he's being set up? Huh, that would be a really cool way to start a book. You're that guy, you're walking in and all of a sudden... The lights come on, the cameras come on, and you're on live TV being called a pedophile. Wow, that would be a heck of an opening. Where can we go from there? And that's sort of how I do it. It sounds like it takes 10 minutes. By the way, all these ideas I've expressed to you, um, then I have to come up with the endings. Uh, it's usually s- several months of work. It's about two or three months. So, so I'm doing it all year long, nine months maybe to write it, but three months between each book usually trying to come up with this, this beginning and this ending. So, and you don't do research. You don't do much research because, as you say, you do a lot of research. You want to put it in the book and may not really be relevant to the story. <laughs> yeah. If I want research, I read you, Steve. <laughs> you're a careful researcher. You know what you're talking about. Uh, I read history books. I'm not the guy to read to learn something, though maybe you will, I hope, about human nature. But I, I actually am the only, I'm one of the few authors who it has to be realistic and you have to have it done in the real world, no question about it. But a lot of writers use research as an excuse not to write because it's more fun. And it's also a danger, as you just mentioned. If you do a lot of research, a lot of books you've read, you could see the authors falling in love with his research rather than the story. And so he's clouding up the story by giving you too much information. I actually try to write it as much as I can without it. And then I'll go back and I'll ask the expert. In the win book, that I just finished involves some art theft, a huge art theft of a Vermeer and a Picasso. And I was sort of curious about um, how they would authenticate it once they found it and all of that. So I kind of wrote what I figured would happen. And then I spoke to someone at NYU who actually does it, who could give me the little details and fill in the gaps. But I did it afterwards. I didn't let it slow me down because I was, you know, I really wanted to get on with that particular part of the story. We were in COVID, so I wasn't going to be able to actually visit the spot. So, yes, of course, do research. And, and most, a lot of my research is making phone calls. If I need to know, you know, about all the things you've done, I'll just call you on the phone and say, can you help me with this? And most people are willing to. Let's quickly discuss some of your characters. We'll get to win in a moment. Uh, start with Myron Bolitar, sports agent. You were a great basketball player. You once said... Uh, Part of it's wish fulfillment, and part of it is he's jealous of me, and I'm jealous of him. And uh, the other thing you do is you age him. Unlike some other writers, he gets old and changes. Walk us through that. It's it's a, it's a fascinating. Uh, he 
He's real, Myron. Sure. Really thank is. you. <laughs> yeah, when I wrote the first book, Deal Breaker, Myron was uh, about 27 or 28. And in the most recent Myron Voltar book, which was called Home, he's in his mid-40s. Though I think you can read them out of order. I think most people have, like, well, read book seven, and then I'll go back and read them in order. I think the later ones are better, so sometimes I think it's better that way. Um, but since 1995, I've been I've been writing him. He's a sports agent, and it is wish fulfillment. I mean, I was a basketball player, as you mentioned, in college, but I wasn't nearly as good as, as Myron. He's faster, he's funnier, he's stronger. Um, he's a better friend. Um, he's got a lot of things better than I do because I, he has the time to, to think of the great line that I can't quite come up with. So I'm better in two areas. One, I'm a better dancer, which I'll demonstrate later. And uh, two, I'm slightly wiser in the ways of women. This is no great shakes, but Myron's love life is something of a disaster while I've been with my wife since I was a sophomore in college. But the thing, the, the, the part of it that I think really kind of made it work was I gave Myron something that I always wanted and Myron has something I always wanted. Myron's whole dream in life is to get married and have kids and live in the suburbs and have the barbecues in the yard and the rusted basketball rimming with his kids in the backyard. And I've been able to have that, you know, and Myron has not, I've not given him that. And so he's envious of me. On the other hand, my parents died young. Uh, they were, my dad was uh, 59. My mom was around 60. I mean, I missed them greatly. And so I, I was able to give this relationship to Myron still has this wonderful relationship with his parents though in the books, they're starting to age and he's going through a lot of things I never had to go through. So I'm a little envious of him. I get, you know, the re his parents are very similar to what I, I think my relationship with my parents would be had they survived. And this duality, this tension, I think has made the series stronger. And his sidekick, Wynn, give us his full name. Windsor Horn Lockwood III. And uh, <laughs> as you say, he's as bad as that sounds. Describe yeah. Wynn. And now you've done a book about him. I can't wait to see it next March. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always loved the buddy kind of book thing, like Spencer and Hawk, you know, Holmes and Watson, Batman and Robin. I love the buddy buddy. I love the the sidekick character. So I gave Myron one named Windsor Hornlock with the third, who I based on my college roommate at Amherst, who has a name equally obnoxious to Windsor Hornlock with the third. Lives on the main line in Philadelphia, you know, member of Marion and Pine Valley and all the right golf clubs and all of that. And um, this guy's a superhero. I mean, he. Does oh, everything yeah. we dream of doing. Well, in real life, he's not. <laughs> in real life, he can't find his way to a paper bag. But I also made him a little bit sociopathic, but in a way I hope you find sympathetic. And before we go to fraternity parties, when we were at Amherst College, he would look in the mirror and go, it must suck to be ugly. You know, he was a really good-looking guy and all that. So I decided to tweak that character, and, and he's become probably the most popular character that I write. And I resisted for years, because I always think it's a mistake, frankly, to have the sidekick I think the pe reason people want more of the sidekick is because that's a good sign is you don't want too much of them. But I came up with an idea and a concept and it's first person win. If you've never read any of my books, it's a great place to start. And getting in the head, his head, he's a little bit sociopathic, but you also completely understand him. And it was really kind of fun to have an anti-hero. Most of my heroes are good guys. And win sometimes is not. And for that reason, ends up being, in a sense, more lovable. Having, you know, nice guys is not really as important as having a character that's real. People won't sympathize with nice characters. They'll sympathize with somebody real, someone you want to sit next to in a bar and, ha and talk to. That's what the key to, to creating that kind of character is. And uh, quickly describe the book signing where Wynn did better than 
<laughs> so yeah, as I mentioned, Wynn is based off a real character, a real person. And, um, you know, I, I, so I told the story of, of how I, I created Wynn when I was at a book signing in New York. And then I said, and I don't want to give it away, but Wynn is right now in this room. And it took the people there about four seconds to figure out which guy he was because he was wearing a blue blazer and Lily Pulitzer <laughs> tie and he had the blonde hair perfectly parted and all of that. And he had a longer line for people to sign his book after this, after I finished speaking than I did. He, had a, he got quite a cake. In fact, I, I just played golf with him yesterday, the real life win. <laughs> so we are still been best friends since, uh, since we met in 1980. And um, it's been really quite a ride. And he's, he's he, I think he's very excited to have the wind book out because he likes the notoriety. You know, it gets some better tea times. And people are scared of him after reading the book. So he's he's very excited about the return of Wynn also. Uh, before we get to uh, your screenplays and your great successes there, you have, a, and writers should know this, all creators should know it, even in business, you have what you call the spare file. Yeah. So, um, when I'm not sure, when I'm writing a book, if I'm not sure if I want to cut out something or not, or, you know, I, I cut it out and I put it in a file called spare. So if I'm not sure I want to keep it or not, I cut it out and I put it in the spare file. And I can always then um, put it back. And by the end of a book, usually the spare file's been as little as 50 and as many, maybe as many as 150 pages. And I've written 30 something books. And to date, I have never put anything back. Never. Um, so you always can cut. It's very hard. Um, I don't remember if it was Hemingway or Faulkner. I think they both get credit. Some of these people always get credit for the other one's quotes, but saying you have to kill all your darlings. It's really true. There's some lines that I absolutely love, but they don't belong in there. There's times I'm, I think of something really clever and funny, I think anyway, and I say, oh, you know what? I'm going to stick it in this scene. And it just is not organic. And so really the key is it's a little bit, you know, when you read about Michelangelo and doing how he sculpted, it wasn't that he was that he was sculpting something, he was taking away things from the block until this figure emerged. And it's the same way. You have to be ruthless. Spare file gives you the ability to put it back, which is so key. It's one of the reasons I also recommend, I mean, I do it differently. Most of the time, though, I do the first draft in eight or ten page ways with on paper and pen. I have next to my desk here, I have dozens of notebooks. I'm always writing. By hand, and the reason I like to write by hand is twofold. Um, one is it's childlike. You know, you're you're getting your inner child by doing it. But the second thing is, when you cross something out, it's still there. It's still legible. When you delete something you're writing on a computer, it's gone. And so there's something you know. So I did eight or ten pages, and then I don't count it as done pages until it's on the word processor. So that also means that your your first draft is actually already your second draft. But there's something, you know, I draw arrows, I skip words, I'll, I'll make pictures, uh, you'll see phone numbers written on the side because life is going on at the same time. And so try that also. Again, anything that makes you write is good. Anything that doesn't make you write is bad. So if you can write straight on a word processor, do it. Computer, laptop, iPad, I, you know, some people record it directly into their phones, whatever it's going to be, just, just do it. And uh, part of writing or many things in life is rejection. But describe, though, the breakthrough. Tell no one. Suddenly your life changes. You're now, call it a rock star. And uh, the advice you give to anyone, whether it's acting, writing, when you, if you reach that phase and not let it ruin you, what do you do? 
Well, you know, it's called in our case it's called a breakout book, and it, cha- it does it, it changes your life and it messes. It'll really mess with your head. I, I really, to be, I don't know how the young actors or the young musicians, which of course is what a writer will go through to the tenth degree, um, how they survive it. And I get why they they often um, collapse. The key is to start working on the next thing as soon as possible because you will get paralyzed and. I tell the writers that have that breakout book, just get the next one done as soon as possible because the critics are going to slam it. You know, it's not going to, people are going to say, wow, it wasn't as good as whatever. Get past it and get back on to your career. My, uh, the guys that I admired growing up were the people or the writers I admired were the ones who were constantly producing, not those sort of one hit wonders who had one huge book and went away. I wanted the kind of career like Elmore Leonard had or, you know, Robert B. Parker or Mary Higgins Clark, to mention another New Jersey. They were producing stuff every year and had that kind of long-term career. And I was lucky that I, so when I, before Tell No One actually came out, I had already finished or just about finished Gone for Good. So when the breakout happened, and again, I, I was older than I was 39. I had four kids. They were seven and under. My fourth child was born. The day, the same day I first hit the New York Times bestseller list. So that was a good day, July 11, 2001. So I still remember it, obviously. Um, so I was in place of being more grounded. It is not easy. Um, and I know a lot of writers, and we do, who had that one big book and really just got frozen in it. They're replacing it lost in as Hollywood because when Tell No One Hit, Hollywood called. They wanted to hear every idea I had. They wanted me to fly out there and talk to them, start making TV and making movies. And thank goodness, a, a wise publisher told me, sat me down and said, don't do that. Um, every writer who's done that has disappeared and and, the, and you've got nothing made out there. It's a terrible place. Hollywood's a- this, is, this is a good segue to your phenomenal success on the screen, whether it's a TV or the uh, traditional movie screen. First, you appreciate novel versus uh, screenplay. One is solo, the other is a team. Walk us through that first, and then the difference between Hollywood and what you've experienced overseas in these productions. Well, the first thing is, um, I, and this is probably different than almost every writer you'll speak to, I do not think an adaptation should be slavishly devoted to the text. There is a difference between a book and, there is an, and a TV series or a movie, and they should be different. There are things that I do in the book where I can be internal that you simply cannot do and you can't express. And when you try to force that, the worst worst adaptations, if you think of it, are normally the ones that are exactly the same. I mean, in some cases with fantasy, maybe it works, but for the most part, it doesn't. I mean, I think One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest was so strong because it was willing to go away from the book. I think L.A. Confidential is another example. Godfather is, of course, uh, another example. The opposite example is The Great Gatsby. I remember back uh, years ago, Robert Redford, they did it exactly as the book and the movie was boring as heck. Bonfire tried the same thing. You know, so Bonfire Vanities tried the same thing. You have to, so I go in with with that. For example, when I was doing Tell No One, the movie Tell No One with Guillaume Canet, he wanted, I had a a plus size model, which didn't really work in France. We had a chance of getting Kristen Scott Thomas. So he said, I'm going to change her to a restaurant tour because we had this really cool restaurant we could shoot in. I'm like, that's exactly right. It, it, that's exactly the or changing of, the sex of the uh, stranger. Right. <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> it, it, so the stranger, which is on Netflix now, in the book, the stranger is a 
a male white guy. And it wasn't to be woke or any of that other stuff that people claim. It's because this diversity often makes the show much better. So we ended up, uh, it was actually my suggestion. I was watching, we were auditioning men doing that first scene. The stranger opens up basically with a man who's happy and content at a soccer outing with his kids. And a stranger walks up to him and says, you know, you didn't stay married to your wife. She faked her last pregnancy and, and, and then pretended to have a, a, a miscarriage and she was lying to you. And here's the evidence and just walks away. That's how the, the series opens. And when a guy was doing it, it just wasn't ringing on the stage. And I said, we need someone like young and hip and can just dominate a scene. And Hannah John came in, came in and was like, wow, she's the stranger. Completely different than the book. And, but that's, and that was my decision, actually. And I think you have to be willing, again, in a sense, to kill all your darlings, as we mentioned earlier with the first draft. You have to do what's going to work visually. So that's what we've, I've always tried to do with the Netflix series or Tell No One in a sense, though I was a little less involved in Tell No One um, than I am certainly with most of the TV series. And uh, describe, you Tell No One, you mentioned first uh, you, you did try the Hollywood thing. It didn't work. And describe that and then why Hollywood can't get it, but overseas you can get involved. It, it, it's a whole different world. It is. I mean, Hollywood is waking up, though, I think, and, and they're realizing I mean, it's a different world now than it was then. So first of all, this is 2000, 2001, before I, the book had even been published. You know, it was a several studio auction, went for a lot of money. And um, uh, the people who originally who bought it wrote a screenplay where the heart and soul of the book is a man who, who whose wife is murdered and he can't get over her death. Eight years pass and he sees her on a webcam and he realizes she's, she may still be alive. And the whole point is, this is a man over eight years who couldn't get over the death of his wife. And Hollywood just could not understand that. So they said, you know, we're going to give him a girlfriend. So now it's a love triangle. Oh, my God, that's just it's terrible. So I had an out in my contract, even though they kept throwing money, frankly, at me, three years. And I had this crazy French guy named Guillaume Canet calling me all the time and telling me his ideas. I, I loved what he wanted to do with it. I, and I also realized that they optioned it. Unlike Hollywood, which could piss away a, a ton of money, a French company can't. So the French, when they bought it, I knew they would actually make it. It's, <laughs> it's amazing how many times people are optioned and how much money they throw at things and then never make them. And so it was a labor of love that Guillaume Canet and I and this great team made and uh, ended up making a movie that is considered by many to be a classic. I, it's hard for me to be the one to to say that, because a lot of it, though, it was, you know, Guillaume had a terrific, one example, if you see the movie, Tell No One, there's a terrific chase scene across the main road, first time it was closed down in France, uh, the Parafique, which goes around and goes to all the airports, they closed it down for us from like 5 to 6 a.m., we only had one take on it, and it's a wonderful chase scene, um, but it's been wonderful chasing because you're in the guy's head, you're in this doctor's head is running away from the police and he can't believe he's doing it. In America, he would have commandeered a helicopter, you know, and start shooting down <laughs> police. But every moment of this thing when he's falling and he's tripping and he's jumping over, it feels very, he's limping, he's hurt himself. It feels very, very real. And that's, I, I can't take credit for that. That was Keon Kennedy's directing. But it's a, it's a film I'm very proud of and you can find it online pretty easily. Netflix, which has been a great success, is also something of an outsider in the old Hollywood ways. Seemingly little things like posters. For a series, they would do 20 different posters. Describe that. 
Well, you know better than I do about disruptive economics and how that kind of works. And the, that, that outlier you think has no chance in trying to muscle in. You think of it, this guy who owns some DVD stores is trying to muscle in on ABC, NBC, and HBO. And it worked. But one of the things that they do uh, on Netflix, and maybe you've noticed this if you have Netflix, is the posters change for the shows you're watching or you, you or they're, they're trying to entice you to watch. So if you're watching uh, one of my shows like um, The Stranger, sometimes you'll see a picture of Richard Armitage. Sometimes you'll just see a house. Sometimes you'll see a group shot. Sometimes you'll see the teenagers in it. Sometimes you'll see two women, Jennifer Saunders and Siobhan Finneran, who appeal to the people who watch Downton Abbey. Uh, Siobhan was played uh, the bad guy O'Brien in the early seasons. So they know what you like and what you don't like, and they try to tailor it. And if it's not working, they change it up. So there's about 20 different posters that they will show you, um, and, you and they'll change them if, that, if those aren't, aren't working. And then there's always a meeting we have where they show me all the posters and they say, which one do you think did best? And it's never one that would appeal to me. So it's really sort of interesting. And, and of course, Netflix is a, in, a, in 190 countries. Think about that. 190 countries. That's pretty much everywhere, but I think North Korea and like China. So when The Stranger came out on January 30th, all eight episodes dropped in all those countries at the exact same moment. I woke up the next morning and people had, you know, got hundreds, thousands of, of comments already from people who had watched all of it even. And uh, one, one thing you do is it's got to be in one season. You don't believe in uh, stringing the story out for two years, three years, four years. I, mean, I don't rule out ever doing a season two. But we had the option with The Stranger of doing season two or, or another show. And I really couldn't think of another an idea as good. I don't want to do a season two just because you want a season two or because season one was a success. I only want to do a season two if I can come up with a story that will be even better for those characters. And most of those characters are going through something once in a lifetime. The Five, which is also on Netflix right now, is a story of five kids that were playing in the woods when they were young and one of them vanishes and 25 years later their dna shows up and they think after thinking the kid's been dead all these years might be alive one and one of them's a brother now what can they go through like that again after we have the, that answer and i also don't think it's fair to not give you the answer i don't think it's fair to ask you to invest in a show like that and not at the end of the eight or tenth episodes give you okay here's where the kid is here's what happened to the kid Here's what happened to all the characters and give you those answers. That's just not fair. In terms of uh, looking at the culture today, it's very easy to get despaired about it. How is the state of looking ahead? Uh, despite all our problems, there still seems to be a lot of creativity out there. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I think that crime fiction and sense has never been better and done by more people all over the world. I know you're a big reader of them, but you know, I'm doing an event with Joe Nesbo pretty soon and you know, guys from... Scandinavian countries, guys from uh, guys and women, and tremendous diversity still needs to be improved, but better than ever. Um, I think when you start reading the same thing over and over, and the same with films and TV, one of the great things with Netflix, and if you're not doing it, you should, is explore some of these foreign language TV programs. We saw Parasite winning the the Oscar this year, and as uh, they said when they won, if you could just read those one-inch subtitles, you're going to be open to a whole new world all of my favorite movies over the last decade or so have been foreign films and foreign TV. I have one that's already out, The Woods, which is in Polish. And then next is going to be The Innocent, based off my novel, which is Netflix Spain. 
directed by a guy named Oriel Paolo and then starring Mario Casas. And both of those names you should look up. They have other stuff on Netflix that are they're just fantastic. Doing filming one right now, Gone for Good in France. And again, what's beautiful about Netflix is, yeah, you can watch it dubbed. We'll have a dubbed version. I'm not a fan of dubbing. I, I, it's very hard for me. But open up your, you know, open up to, to try other things. Um, if you never saw the movie The Lives of Others, for example, you're, you're used to the German film that came out, I must be over 10 years by now. You're missing the best film in the last two decades. So you know, make sure you, you try that. So in closing, you've sort of done it, but maybe you could just sum up advice to writers. Well, I mean, there's a ton of things, but the key to writing is to write. So all the advice you get, here's how you do markdown. If it's helping me produce words on a page, good. If it's not, bad. That's it. Means staying up late at night and writing, that's how you work, great. Waking up earlier in the morning, great. Also, accept no excuses. Um, we have our old friend Mary Higgins Clark who passed away recently. But when Mary was first starting out as a writer, she had five kids. and She was in her 30s. And her husband died. And the next day, her mother-in-law died. So Mary's left back in those days, raising five kids and working a full-time job. So she would wake up and write from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., then get the kids awake. So don't tell me on time to write. Don't accept that as an excuse. So get words down on paper. That's the real key to writing. Don't let excuses stop you. That would be my single advice if I could only give one piece of advice. Good. Well, thank you again. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for uh, showing us how uh, you can keep going by the old thing, hard work. Always nice to talk to you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 